The book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, is where we'll study this morning. Up until this point, we've had the Apostle's introduction of his letter. And here at verse 18, there is a transition. And from verse 18 in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, there is this focus on the righteousness of God, his wrath, and the sinfulness of humanity. And it's a heavy topic, because what have we just studied? The revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ. That was verses 16 and 17 that we studied. And so we've had, as it were, the good news. And as one commentator put it, here's the bad news. Man is a sinner, and he needs a Savior. And so we'll study this together. We're obviously going to go quite slow through this. This is a heavy topic. It's not a, a thing to be made light of, as none of the scriptures are. Uh, but it is one that I do believe requires great care from us as we take the word of God up together, that we rightly handle it to his glory and to our benefit. So let's read the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Thus far, the word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that, Lord, you would subdue us to your word. O Lord, that we will hear it. O Lord, that we will receive it. O Lord, that you would give us understanding a consideration of your eternal attributes and your divinity. O Lord, that we might tremble before you, a holy God. O Lord, and that we might also be reminded of your mercy and grace as you are a God of love through the work and the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Did this passage make you uncomfortable? Did you feel the weight of the language of hellfire and brimstone? One of the things that every minister does and whenever he preaches... He has to be aware of how he says things, how he holds his body, how he pitches his voice, the way he says words, and the way he emphasizes things. Because the word of God speaks for itself very clearly without theatrics. What we've just read is profoundly heavy. It ought to make you 
at least a little bit timid. But again, I ask you the question, are you uncomfortable? And some of you who are regularly in the church and have heard the ministry that comes from this pulpit, you may sometimes think the pastor is rarely very delicate or very gentle. He's very direct, doesn't pull punches in sermons. And if you're thinking that right now, I'll just simply say to you that verse 18 is not mine. These aren't my words. It's not part of a sermon. I just read the Bible to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That makes the world uncomfortable. Within its own text, it bears witness to that reality. Our ears don't like hearing this. And so again, you may be thinking, well, that's harsh. Isn't there a more gentle way to say this? Is there a charitable interpretation of this passage? And I would encourage you and press you, friends, not to search for charitability, but rather honesty when it comes to the Word of God. Not the opinion of a pastor or a theologian or even of yourselves, but rather a simple handling and wrestling with what God says the way God says it in His revealed Word. You see, you may think this is such a harsh passage, but it's not a passage in isolation, even though that's essentially the way I'll handle it this morning. That's for space of time. That's out of consideration for your uh, attention span, also out of consideration for my ability to communicate. This passage is not divided. It's It's not put at great distance from verse Verses 16 and 17, nor the rest of verses 19 through 23, or even the whole of the book of Romans. It is within the grip of the Apostle Paul speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is for him the method he chose to use to argue for the necessity the necessity of the grace of Christ that is only received by faith. There is good news that there is salvation. There is bad news that apart from it, we are a hopeless bunch, all subject to the righteous wrath of God. This is Paul's method of communication. This is authoritative, inspired scripture moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And so two things I want us to see this morning from it is firstly, in verse 18, that God's wrath is against all sin. God's wrath is against all sin. And then also in verse 18, 
that sin suppresses the truth. That sin suppresses the truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. When Paul says that it is, he uses a present passive indicative. And this teaches us something. It expresses his theology more clearly in the original language. It's saying that God is not only going to punish sin, God is not only in the future going to unveil his wrath against sin, but rather presently God is revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is such an important thing because you and I live in a world of credit cards, don't we? You take now, you pay later, right? We live in a society that does not expect immediate or present consequences for real things. You and I would hate to procrastinate about receiving the gift, but we would love to procrastinate for paying for the gift, right? Put it off, put it off, put it off. Give it to me now so I can enjoy it now, but don't make me pay for it until later. It's more comfortable. I can do things now, and then I can just go and deal with it after the fact. This is one of the great liabilities of a religion that practices a cycle of confessions and absolutions. Because the person says simply this, I can do what I want right now. And I'll just go and I'll confess it later. I've got time. I've got the indefinite tomorrow. I can always go and deal with it later. I can pay for it in days to come and weeks to come and years to come. Or maybe even for the man who hates God. Though even in himself he knows there is a God. He will simply say, well, you only live once. I'll do whatever I want now. I'll let him sort it out later. But this passage of Scripture pushes back against that. It is rather the case that the wrath of God is present and it is revealed in the way Paul says this. It's it's made manifest. But it's from a source, okay? Okay? The manner in which he speaks of it, it's the wrath of God. That's the author of the wrath. But that it comes from him directly according to his divine appointment and his handling and unveiling of things in this life. That's what Paul's saying to us. And I just want to tell you that it's unambiguous. It's unambiguous. It's plain. That's the whole point of this section of Paul's letter. To be unambiguous, to be clear about these things, to leave no room for other argumentation or dismissal. 
And this ought to strike you and it ought to strike me and it ought to strike the world with the weight of a God who is not absentee in His justice. Oftentimes it is said that it was a facet of the medieval man to be afraid of God. You read in medieval sources, you read in Reformation and early modern sources, this idea of the fear of God. And there's so much attributed to it. And so many sociologists look on the medieval history of the world, whether it's Europe, the ancient Near East, or however. Usually they're speaking about the Western world. And they, they touch upon this idea that men do things because they're afraid of God. And that it's modern people, or maybe I should say postmodern people, we're a bit free from that shackle. That was a thing then, that was a thing of a primitive society, a, a, a thing of superstition, where they believed God actually did direct the seasons, the days, the years, that God actually did direct history, and that God actually did have a hand in all things that came to pass, those good and those bad. And I want to tell you, Christian, if Words like God's wrath is make you uncomfortable. You need to deal with that. It's not my word. It's not Nick's opinion. It's not the opinion of Reformed theology, whatever that is. It's in the black and white of the word of Scripture. You have to wrestle with it. You have to deal with it. If this is the word of God, you have to reconcile to it. Because it is truth that is not dependent upon you, but an author that resides in heaven and who will pour this out from heaven without any earthly aid nor agent, but sovereignly in his creation. You say, that sounds harsh. And it does. It's the word of God. And it ought to cause us to fear the God whose word it is. We continue on and I want to point out another thing. It's not only that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, but that it is revealed against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. Why do I point that out? All. Again, unambiguous in the text. Well, it's because some people will say, well, this is just an ancient book for an ancient time, and really it has relevance to its original readers, and absolutely it did. And so what relevance can this have to me? Or maybe even some people will say... That's an ancient Near Eastern book, and that has relevance specifically to the people of that region. Or maybe that's even a Christian book, or even other sociologists want to look upon this and say, eh, that's sort of a Judeo-Christian book, and that only has relevance to them. It doesn't really have relevance to Asians or South Africans. It doesn't have relevance to Norwegians or Russians or South American indigenous persons. That's not the testimony here. It is rather that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness with the import of all men without exception. 
This is a universal and general truth being expressed here. That not a single person on the face of the globe, not a single person under the eternal history of this sort of God, the God who has an invisible attribute of eternal power, that not a single person is outside of this reality. And also that not a single sin that those persons can then commit, not a single act of ungodliness, not a single act of unrighteousness, are outside of the rule of this God and the culpability to his wrath. Not one. No exclusion. No exclusion at all being made. Why is this important? Well, it is simply because in the day and age in which we live, we believe that we author our own truth, that we discern and decide our own circumstances, that we are the master and the deciding factor of whether or not we will submit or be culpable to anything. And in a practical and a real sense, I simply want to say to you, that is a basic illusion of the modern man. You and I don't have control over the weather. You and I, frankly, don't have control over your government. As an individual, you really don't. You have a vote. Your vote is one of many. People will act upon you apart from your will and your desire to let them do this. You are not sovereign in your own sphere, and you are certainly not sovereign regarding your Creator. This means that the person that says, I hear what you say, Christians, and I reject it, and I don't like it, and I don't want it, that it does not nullify the fact that you have a creator and that you are accountable to this. You can reject the Bible and burn it in your front yard and bury the ashes or put it into a stream that it might be washed away and forget it. You can reject every ounce of the proposition of the Word of God and the person of Christ and all of His people, and yet the truth remains that there is a God in heaven who rules and who created you and who has a say over your heart and soul, and who will judge you regardless of how you feel about it. About every single sin, the ones that you're proud of and you're public about, and the ones that you're secretive about and you think no one knows. Every single one of them, and every thought and inclination of the depth of your heart that is contrary to the Word of God, He sees and knows. And you're accountable to Him for Every single one of them. Pastor, that's harsh. That's hellfire and brimstone. Are you uncomfortable? If this is the first time you've ever been uncomfortable by that, I just want to say something to you that this has existed as a proposition for your life before you took your first breath. You may have just been ignorant of it or even suppressing the truth by your sinful willfulness. When Paul describes 
these two aspects of sin in the passage that we have. He uses two words that are translated variously into English. And I'll also say generally in a synonymous way into English. My ESV translates uh, the first of them, which is a savion in Greek, as ungodliness. And then the second, adikion, which the root of it is related to just or righteous, dikeo, is unrighteousness. These two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And I, I generally would say that Christians and English speakers, if they use the language at all, would use these two, ungodliness and unrighteousness, as perfectly exchangeable for one another, almost. If you're godly, then you act righteously, right? If you're righteous, then that's godly. We almost don't make a distinction, but there's a distinction in the original language. And the first of which has to do with the character of sin that is in its essence impiety. Impiety. Godlessness. Not honoring, not worshiping God. Not giving a life lived as God ought to have it lived to him in his honor. Rather, ungodliness would be something like a life lived as if God were blind. As if he was impotent, emptied of power. And ultimately as if he's non-existent. Ungodliness this first aspect of sin that's righteously and wrathfully dealt with by the hand of God. And then there's the second word, idikion. Unrighteousness has everything to do with immorality. The condition of the thought of the heart. The things that drive us to do anything. And those things being characterized to be at odds with the revealed will of the God of heaven. The thoughts, the deeds, the desires, the affections of the person against God. Wickedness. Evil. Things acted out in action. And I think I'm likely right whenever I say that some of you may be struggling here again. Ungodliness, unrighteousness. We, we use this language and maybe toss it around in spiritual conversation. It's kind of a dialect of Christians. But when you really consider what we're talking about, this is strongly at odds with the teaching of this world and of our culture. Because what are we ultimately saying? Well, we're saying that there is a distinction. There is godliness and there's ungodliness. We're saying there's righteousness and unrighteousness. We're saying there's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's evil. There's wickedness. There's holiness. That these things are real. They're not just storybook characters. They're not just the unique facets of an antiquated tale. Because after all, that's how it's treated today. 
and less and less even so presently. Go watch a movie, go read a book. What's the tactic today? Well, the tactic is to psychologize away the reality of evil and wickedness in the heart of men. To relativize it into all of the circumstances of life and to gently describe it away and to excuse it. Some of you may remember this, and again, also, I'm aware that this is foreign to many of you. But on April 15th, 2013, in the United States of America, there occurred a terrible tragedy of what would be called domestic terrorism. There was the bombing of the Boston Marathon. Three people were killed, 280 people injured at some measure or another, people having lost limbs to this. These are runners. To take a limb off of a runner is profound. It's a tragic thing. Three people were killed. That's April 15th, 2013. On July 17th, 2013, Time Magazine, you may be familiar with it, Sold all over the world. Time magazine placed the young face of a man named Jokar Tsarnaev on its cover. You may say, okay, big deal. Lots of people are on the cover at Time. He was called the cute one of the two bombers that murdered three people. Injured 280 people and changed the culture and the lives of people forever. And this is scarcely three months removed from the event. Not just infamous in the wickedness of the act, but famous in his image. A whole expose about Jokar. All about his life, all about the things that promoted him to do this act. And in no way did Tom actually simply say, well, it was justified, but they gave all of his justification. For anybody to decide who is right and wrong in this situation, there is no circumstance on the planet where it is right to kill three people, bomb 300 some odd people, and maim 280. There is no circumstance to do this to innocent people simply running in a race, in a friendly competition. In movies today, you might see the the villain. You just need to know his circumstance. You just need to listen and hear out. Don't pay attention to the atrocities, the things they've done, the people... They've killed. They had reasons. They had wrong things. Maybe they were mentally incapacitated. Whatever. Really, evil's not so evil. If you just understand it, it's not really black. It's actually gray. And it's a line in which the world wants us to tow, where we simply join them in this and always say... Well, if the bad guy did a bad thing, well, he probably had a good reason, or he was probably pressed by somebody. Maybe he was. He does not deny nor remove culpability or make right 
the wicked and the evil act then perpetrated upon other people or against the God of heaven. Good reasons for evil actions do not negate their evil. Does that make you uncomfortable, church? You couldn't say what I'm saying generally in the media today. You couldn't say what I'm saying in movies today. Make hard and sharp, angular identifications of these things. But let me simply say to you Christians, if you are a Christian and you are a person of the word of God, God's word does that. You don't have to be the one that makes those decisions. You can judge things according to the way the word of God actually teaches Let God remain the judge. However, you remain a person that has a clear category of that which pleases him and that which offends and dishonors him. Secondly, in this passage, we see that sin suppresses the truth. And I think there's a question we all have to ask, and maybe you have asked it or maybe you haven't. And it's this, what are people doing when they sin? Maybe I should say it like this and encourage you to ask it this way. What am I doing when I sin? And some of you may answer, and these some are uh, very good answers, simply, well, they're, they're following their worst inclination. That's what sin is. That's what they're doing. Or maybe you would say that they're doing Uh, What pleases God or that we, when we sin, are doing what pleases us rather than what pleases God, right? I mean, that's how we can just kind of put it down into a pocket. We can define it. Those are accurate things. Sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Not keeping God's law or doing what God's law forbids. But our sins, our unrighteousness, our ungodliness are themselves immoral acts of our hearts that have a specific effect in us and things that we ourselves as sinful people use tactically against God personally. Why do I say something like this? It's because of what the passage of Scripture says. Paul describes what unrighteousness does. He says that the people who are doing, which would be all people, ungodliness and unrighteousness, that they are by their unrighteousness suppressing the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. To look at this again, I look and see in the English, and it does reflect the original language, but there's an aspect of this you need to understand. The word translated suppress, it's a participle, it's not just a past tense sort of thing, like you suppressed it, or even that you're presently. But rather, you are actively doing the work of suppressing. 
Some commentator has, commentators have issues over translating this word suppress. They like the word hinder. Hinders the truth because after all, the truth will out, right? The word of God is a thing that will in, inevitably have its day. It will inevitably speak into the world. And so you can't really say suppress. It's bottled and kept and jarred up and pushed away. But nonetheless... The thing that's in view is that our unrighteous, our immoral acts, our sins are what we do when we want to silence the mouth of God. It is what we do when we know the truth and hate it and refuse to have it speak into our lives. It is what the sinful heart does when it wants to gag God from simply saying to you as his creature, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We're like children who are in disobedience to their parents and they just get louder so that they can't hear the voice of the loving parent saying, stop. You ever do that, children? Mom and dad say something and you just get louder. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Because what we tell ourselves is essentially the same thing that was told in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. It has its root right there in it, doesn't it? Sin has always had this mark and this facet of itself. Genesis 3, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. You got this interaction between a serpent who still has legs of some sort and then God's creatures made in his image and after his likeness, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The serpent said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. A further elaboration on God's word and something he never said about touching it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear the lie? Yeah, God's word says that. But really, it's not true. If you sin, he won't really kill you. If you, if you do this, you, it's not really true. And so the lie of sin, the immorality of sin that calls God a liar, presses down the knowledge of truth in the heart of humanity and simply says, do what you want. Do what you want. His word is not actually true. He is not truly speaking 
to you. He won't actually kill you. Contextually, he'll know you had a good reason you wanted to be like him. You see, for us, whenever we do sin and we do the immoral act, we're always saying something, aren't we? We're always telling ourselves something. Whether we're in Christ or outside of Christ, we're just a creature and we do this. We say to ourselves, I'll do what I want because it'll make me feel better. It'll make me feel better than I would have felt if I did what God wants. I know that God doesn't want me to sleep around outside of marriage. But if I do, I'll feel better. His word tells me it'll make me feel worse, but I'll feel better. I'll feel better. I'll do better. I'll be more affirmed. I'll do what I want. Or even if I do this sin, if I go and I have the joy that I want, I have, have this act, and this is going to affirm things in me, it's going to make me uh, more affected in my person than if I were to simply do what God wants. And I won't feel conviction for sin. If I deny Christ, I won't feel conviction for the sin that I'm involved in. If I deny his word, I won't feel conviction I won't feel cut to the heart. If I don't attend church, I won't feel cut to the heart. If I don't study his word, I won't feel cut to the heart about the sin that I just did. It's not true. But it's the lie that we use to push down the testimony of God's word in our heart. If I'm with him, if I'm with her, I'll feel confirmed in myself and I'll be more truly who I am than who God says I am. If only I just give in to this desire. Not only will I no longer care about what he wants for me, I'll not be subject to his wrath against me. Our sins are essentially lies that we use immorally, calling God a liar. To press down the testimony of his word in the hope that we will not feel conviction nor will we receive righteous retribution. Does that make you uncomfortable, Christian? It ought to make us uncomfortable in ourselves rather than uncomfortable in God. I would encourage you to turn to Christ and cling to him rather than to our sins that only separate us from God and account us as a people guilty before his face. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things from the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would submit us to them. Lord, that you would convince us of them and their truths. And that, Lord, you would help us to be a people who would run from sin and run to you in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen.